together once again to the book of Genesis. This morning we will be looking at Genesis chapter 23. We'll look at the entirety of the chapter. It is 20 verses. And if you'd please give attention to the reading of God's Word. For the Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived for 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price let him give it to me. In your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, and all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. 
Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word. That you would show us, O Lord, that we are like Abraham. That we too are strangers and pilgrims. Lord, we ask that you would remind us that you have prepared for us a better place, a heavenly country. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. It's difficult to be in a strange place, isn't it? I remember the very first time that I was in Houston by myself. I had flown in in advance of moving here because then Pastor John Carroll was out of town for General Assembly and I was brought in to to fill the pulpit in anticipation of me arriving permanently with my family in a few months. And I came with great anticipation and flew into the airport and rented a vehicle. And I started to drive down 10. And I knew sort of where I had to go, but somehow I got myself put on eight. And you can imagine as I'm on my cell phone, I did the only thing that any man with any brains would do. I called my wife. And I said, I have no idea where I am. I have no idea where I'm going. I'm on a toll road. I don't have tolls. It says easy pass only. I don't even know what an easy pass is. Quick. Get on Google Maps and help me. And I was in a bit of a panic. I learned two things that morning. First, you can trust your wife to help you out in the gravest of dangers. Second, the very first thing I did when I got home was buy a GPS. It is not good to be someplace strange and not know where you are and not know what the customs are and not know what is good or bad. Sometimes it can be humorous, like my initial trip, but other times it can be very frightening and difficult. And that's what Abraham is expressing for us here in this passage. And the irony of it is, Abraham is expressing to us that he is a stranger and a pilgrim in a place where he has lived for more than half a century. Because you see, he's not describing that he doesn't know the lay of the land. He is describing the truth of every believer in the living God. We live as strangers and pilgrims, even in lands that we have born, we have been born in, and live our whole lives in. And so what I would like us to see this morning are how we can act as pilgrims in this land. First, we will see from our text this morning that pilgrims experience loss. Not everything is happiness. Secondly, we will see that pilgrims are sojourning in the world. We are traveling. We are taking our stay. Third, we will see that pilgrims cling to the promise of God. That is our hope as strangers and pilgrims, to cling to the promise of God. Pilgrims experience loss. Pilgrims sojourn in the world. 
and pilgrims cling to the promise. Let's begin then by looking at our text and the loss that Abraham the pilgrim experienced. Abraham finds out in a deep and cutting way that pilgrims are not immune from death. Our text begins this morning describing Sarah and her life of 127 years and the fact that she died. Now we have to understand here first that Sarah received the blessing of a long life. 127 years she lived. What a blessing of life with her children, with her husband, with her relatives. Sixty of those years or more were spent wandering by Abraham's side, going from place to place. For you see, they had been married, we don't even know how long, perhaps more than a hundred years of marriage. I don't even think that they have an anniversary for a hundred, do they? Diamond is 75, I think. My grandparents are in their early 90s and they're reaching up to that age. But a hundred years, can you imagine? To live with your soulmate. Isaac has grown before her very eyes. She has watched him grow from being a baby to a strapping young lad to now Isaac is in his mid-30s. He is prepared to take over and be the heir of Abraham and to see the promise fulfilled. Sarah is also a woman of great substance. And by that I don't just mean money or material. She shared the promises of God with Abraham. She walked step by step with him. She shared the trials and the tribulations that he experienced. Sarah is a very special woman. She is the only woman in the Bible of whom it is recorded her death and the age that she was at her death. But you see, death is no respecter of persons. Even women and men of great substance like Abraham and Sarah die. Sarah is also a wonderful example to us, not once but twice in the scriptures we are told to be like Sarah. As we approach the holiday season, we begin to think about Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ, and how she is an example for us, and how women are to emulate her. But you see, the scriptures do not tell us to emulate Mary. They tell us to emulate Sarah. Twice. Once in Isaiah 51 and once in 1 Peter 3. I say this not to denigrate Mary, but to tell you of how significant a person Sarah was. And yet she is not immune from death. But pilgrims do experience loss, not just in that they die, but that they watch others die around them. You see, pilgrims are also not immune from grief. I want you to notice something here in chapter 23, in verse 2. That Sarah died and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Don't let your eyes glance over that text. Abraham weeps at the death of his wife. Now, imagine where Abraham did not cry. 
When he was told to leave the land of his family in Ur, to leave everything behind, his parents, his grandparents, everyone he knew, he struck out, and the scriptures do not tell us that he wept. When Lot was captured by the enemy and feared dead, and news comes to Abraham, he does not weep. When God himself comes to Abraham and commands him to sacrifice his only son, the son of his love, the scriptures do not tell us that Abraham weeps. But here, when his dear wife, the love of his life, his companion, when she shakes off that mortal coil, Abraham is not afraid to weep. That's one of the things that we need to learn here today. That Abraham is not too manly to cry. He does not keep it in for the sake of being brave. He gives in to his emotions that God has given to him and he expresses his love for his wife. He is not too heavenly minded to weep. You see, some will tell you, you ought not to weep at the death of saints because it's God's will and you should accept God's will and you should just be thankful and joyous. But you see, this text tells us otherwise that it is okay to grieve for those whom we have lost. Abraham weeps. You see, godliness is not a substitute for grief. It is not a lack of faith on Abraham's part. He is not disobeying God's will. To hold everything in is not biblical Christianity. It is stoicism. It is a denial of the emotions that God has given to us. But there is an important distinction here. That Abraham weeps, he mourns, but he does not do so without hope. That is the difference. For you see, chapter 23, verse 2, is followed by verse 3. After he weeps, he rises up from before his dead and he goes about the business that is necessary. He rises up and he lives again. There is a time for mourning. There is a time for joy. There is a time for work. And Abraham knows this. And he can have hope. He can put aside mourning because he knows that this is not the end. And he goes about his business and we see that not only do pilgrims experience loss, that pilgrims sojourn in the world. They are travelers. You may have heard me say that for the Christian, this world is not our home. It is much more akin to your Motel 6. It's okay. It's dry. It's mostly cool. Mostly warm. Mostly clean. But it's not a place you'd want to live for forever. It's a way stop on your way home. And that's the way we as believers ought to view the world. It's not a horrible, bad place. It's not a place where we cannot thrive and praise the Lord. But it is not our home. And you see, the reality of this is brought to us by Abraham and his words. Look here at verse 4. Abraham rises up and he says to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. 
This tells us the reality that Abraham has no home. After all of this wandering, he has no land to call his own. He has lived here for decades. He has defeated enemies in war. He has founded a family. He is an established figure in this area. He is a man who is respected and yet he has no home. He does not even have a small place to bury his dead. Now when we think about that, and we think about the fact that Abraham is the father of the faithful, are we challenged when we say to ourselves, do we really have enough? Is the house big enough? Couldn't the yard be bigger? Couldn't we use an extra car? Couldn't we have just a little bit more to be happy, to be satisfied? This cuts us to the quick because Abraham, who has everything of the promises, does not even have a place to bury his wife. He has no place to call his own. And he not only knows this, he confesses it before the world. Do you see this? He doesn't play games. So often we as Christians are concerned about projecting an image of power. We speak of America as a Christian nation. Not because we desire it to be true, but because we desire others to follow in line behind us. You see, Abraham is not afraid to confess that he is a man without a home, that he is traveling to a place, a mansion that God is building. He knows that he has truly left everything behind to follow the promise of God. What have you left behind? Have you left behind your sin? Or do you nourish it? Do you young people nourish your sin when your parents aren't around? Watching things you ought not to watch. Saying things you ought not to say. Treating others how you ought not to treat them. Men, are you a different man at work than you are at home or at church? Ladies, have you left behind all that you hold dear to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you live for your family? Do you encourage your husband? Are you teaching your children to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you see, that is what a stranger and a pilgrim does. If you are here this morning and you are holding on to something with all of your might with both hands, you need to look at your hand to know that you cannot receive the gift of God's grace with full hands. Do not hold on to stubble and straw that will prevent you from receiving the grace of the living God. Abraham has followed God and he will continue to do so. You see, for the natural thing for Abraham to do is to go back to his ancestral homeland and to bury his wife there. Some of you know what this is like firsthand. You have parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles who have gone to be with the Lord and you have traveled back to a place where perhaps none of your family even lives anymore to go to burial plots where other relatives are buried because this is your home, this is your land. But you see, Abraham 
will not do that. Not because he couldn't get land. I'm sure he could get relatives to give him land back in Haran, in Paden Aram. No, you see, Abraham has turned his back on his past and he is walking forward to the promises of God. Abraham is confessing that he is a stranger and a pilgrim sojourning in the world. And as we sojourn, we realize that we are not like others. Abraham realizes this. Now, he has the respect of those who are in the land. They call him my Lord. They call him the Prince of God. Surely they remember all of his exploits, of the battles that he has won, of the great wealth that he has amassed. And so because of this, when he asks for land, we see here a response, an offer in verse 6. They say to him, hear us, my Lord. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, there's something going on here that we need to look at. They want to give him a place among their tombs. Abraham can't do this because he's not like them. He's not to be mingled with them, especially in death. It needs to be a section. He needs his own place. His status is a disadvantage at this point. He has no permanent place. He will have no rights under the law. And quite frankly, I think this is why they offer to him this free place. Because they like Abraham being a sojourner. They like him being one rung down. They like him being without rights. They like having the upper hand over Abraham. Does that remind you of your interactions with the world? Are there others who are glad to point out that you are a Christian because they can use it to push you down, to marginalize you and your thoughts? You see, that's what they're trying to do here to Abraham. They make this offer to keep it so Abraham is like the stranger in town. You've all seen this in in movies and in plays, when a stranger comes into town and he's there, the townspeople immediately try to take advantage of him. Maybe you've experienced this. How when you go into a strange town, seemingly miraculously, the speed limit goes from 55 to 30 in 10 feet. And it just so happens that there's a policeman there. And it just so happens that the ticket is exorbitant. We take advantage of strangers, don't we? But you see, Abraham knows this. He's not fooled. And he is willing to be taken advantage of so that he might stand on the distinction that he is a follower of God. We need to understand this and we need to remember this. In several weeks, Lord willing, those of you that are over 18 will walk into a voting booth. And you must remember, in the midst of all of the haze, of all of the ads, of all of the policies, of all of the people, you must remember that first and foremost, you go in there as a stranger and a pilgrim. And first and foremost, you go in there to uphold God's law. 
to say in the voting booth that it is not right to murder children. It is not right to flout God's law. Are you willing to be disadvantaged in your wealth, in your standing, to stand on God's law? To stand as one who is different because that is what God has done. That's what Abraham is doing here. He takes great care in dealing with the Hittites. We see in verse 2 that Moses even lays out for us that this is a different time and place. He uses the old name of Kiriath Arba to remind us that Abraham is not in charge, that we are not in charge, that it is a land in which we travel and sojourn. And Abraham is very courteous and public about the way that he deals with this. Do you see what he asks for in verse 7? He rises and he bows out of respect to the Hittites and he says to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and talk to Ephraim that he might give me the cave that is at the end of his field. Now notice what he asks for. A very specific place that is out of the way and is not much to ask for. It's just a cave at the end of a field. He doesn't ask for the field. He doesn't ask for the best burial tomb. He just asks for a place. And he says, and by the way, in verse 9, I will pay full price for it. He is courteous in a public way. Is that how you treat other non-Christians? Or do you save your courtesy and your politeness for your friends, for other believers? You see, Abraham here is doing everything he can to give testimony to the fact that the Lord is at work in his life. And so what comes to him then in verse 11 is a new offer. You see, Abraham is a businessman here. Take note, gentlemen. This is how you act at work. This is how you deal with the world. This is how you handle transactions. Ephraim says to him, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. And I give you the cave in it. In the sight of my people, I give it to you. Now, first, we need to ask ourselves, is this a sincere offer? Or is this round one of the negotiations? It's probably the latter. But even if it was sincere, we have to understand that under Hittite law, if Abraham were given the land by Ephron, Ephron's descendants could demand it back because he hadn't paid anything for it. Doesn't do you much good to have a tomb that's only good for a few years. And so, even if it was a sincere offer, Ephraim knows that Abraham's not going to take it and he's going to push back. And so what he then does is, he mentions the field. Do you notice that? Abraham has asked for the cave, and Ephraim says, well, I'll give you the cave, and let's talk about the field, too. Now he's drawing Abraham in. So what should Abraham do? He could lose his cool. He could demand his rights as a citizen. He could say, I didn't ask of the field. All I want is the cave. Don't drive me a hard bargain. I have my rights here. No. 
Abraham responds. And he says, Accept from me the price, the price of the field. But you see, Ephraim isn't done negotiating. Do you see his next tactic? Round three. He says, oh, come on. Really? What's 400 shekels? I'll give it to you. Now, you see what he's just done? He's just put the price tag on the field. Now, this doesn't mean much until you go to other sections of the Bible and you realize Jeremiah bought a field from his cousin for 17 shekels. Omri, the king, bought the entire area of Samaria, virtually a country, for 6,000 shekels. This is a bit pricey. We don't know exactly, but it's, you know, I like that iPad over there. How much is, oh, come on, an iPad. What's two grand amongst us? Oh, Really? Yeah, really, what's 2,000? It's nothing, right? Um, now, you can imagine again, Abraham has two options. He can rise up with indignation. He could say, I deserve better than this. God should give me more than this. Or he could do what he does here. It's amazing, it's so amazing, that I don't think Ephron is ready for this. You see, Ephron expects... Well, you know, it looks like it's only worth 200 to me. And then they settle somewhere around 312. But Abraham says, I'll pay it. He starts counting it out. You can almost imagine in your sanctified imagination the look on Ephron's face. His jaw drops. Wow. He must really want this field. He must really have loved his wife. He must really be looking forward to having a place, a permanent Land. And he does even more than that. It's subtle in the text. He counts out the shekels and he pays it in verse 16 according to the weights current among the merchants. Now, you see, in our day and age, we take for granted that a pound is a pound, right? And a gallon is a gallon. There's a standard set of weights and measures. But it wasn't like that back then. You had scales, and the scales were sort of accurate. And then you'd, what you'd do is you'd put the weight of the silver on one, and then the weight of the standard on the other. There's only one problem. What merchants used to do was when they were buying things, they had a different set of weights than when they sold things. So they got you coming and going. It's kind of like exchanging currency at one of these kiosks. They'll only charge you 30%. Abraham, again, doesn't make any mention of it at all. He has a laser beam focus. He's willing to be taken advantage of because he sees other things are more important. Because you see, in the end, even though Abraham is sojourning through the world... He is really doing so, clinging to the promise of God. He is not clinging to the old. He has given up. <clears throat> that is why he is purchasing this cave and this field. You see, what Abraham is doing is, he is making this very place his ancestral home. 
He is officially starting over. He is officially staking his claim, pun intended, upon the promise of God. He says, this is my land. God has promised it to me. He has renounced his old land. And he has said, I will be here. And this is where my son and my grandson and my great-grandson will take their stand. Because God has given it to them. Where is your home? Where have you staked out your land? Is it evident to others around you? Is it evident to your children that you stand upon the promises of God and that you renounce all of old ways? You see, that's what Abraham teaches us here. And he does it in such a vivid way. This contract is described. They even talk about the trees. It's a very official contract. And Abraham renounces the past and claims the promise of God. But do you see the irony here? Abraham has a tangible reminder of the promise. He has the land that God has promised, but there's only one place in the land he has. It's a grave. Think about that. The only permanent place that Abraham has in the promised land from God is a passageway to the next world. Is a way station to being with the Lord. That's the only place that he has. But even with that, this grave will bind his family here. Sarah will be buried here. He himself will be buried here. His son Isaac will be buried here. His daughter-in-law, Rebecca, will be buried here. His grandchildren will be buried here. And his great-grandson, Joseph, will say in prediction, when you all leave Egypt, do not leave my bones here. Take me back to the promised land. Where Abraham, my father, bought the place and took a stand for the Lord. You see, often we need to abandon the old, even if it's good, in order to follow the way in which the Lord is taking us. The last thing that we see here is that as a stranger clinging to the promise of God, that Abraham understands that God's promises are not exhausted by what we think. Even death cannot exhaust The promises of God. Abraham could have despaired in all of this. He had waited for so long. He had done everything that God had asked. And yet death still reigns over his family. Isn't that a temptation for us? That we follow the Lord, but the first time something bad happens, we think God isn't with us. He's abandoned us. His promises aren't true. But you see, Abraham clings to the promise of God. He knows the promise of God is not exhausted even by death. And so instead, he acts in hope. This death brings grief, but it also is, a greatest, is the greatest show of faith that Abraham can make. Because he knows that his hope goes beyond the grave. 
Nothing can take the promise of God from you that is in Christ Jesus. Not famine. Not poverty. Not death itself. If you have claimed the promise of God of eternal life in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then nothing can take it from you. And what God does here for Abraham is so encouraging. He gives Abraham a deposit on the promise. Do you see that? The land has been promised to Abraham. A people have been promised to Abraham. And what God gives Abraham is a down payment, a deposit, an earnest A place that he can call his own, no matter how small it is, and no matter that it is a grave. You see, Sarah will be buried there, not elsewhere. This is the place where Abraham has staked his claim. He sees that Sarah has died in faith. Even though she has not received the promises, she has died in faith. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me briefly to the book of Hebrews. Where the author describes for us exactly what is going on here. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 8, he's giving this great catalog of the giants of faith. And he says, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore from one man... And him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You see, they had been thinking of a better land and a better place. And you are called to the same thing. To be a stranger and a pilgrim. To live by faith even when the promises do not land in your hand. God is still at work. He has given you a deposit of this promise. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that this deposit, this earnest of the salvation that we are to receive is the Holy Spirit Himself. Do you trust the Lord? Do you know that His promises are true? Then claim them. Stand upon them. Stake your entire existence upon them. For all who die in faith receive the promises that God our Father has promised to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for the way in which You worked Your promises through Abraham. We ask, O Lord, that You would even remind us of the great promises that You have given to us and that You are fully able 
to fulfill them. This we ask, O Lord, in the name of the one who fulfills all the promises, in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.